Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From polar vortexes to droughts, we talk about ways water has been managed with new technologies. Now, polar vortexes can create a lot of ice, and ice can lead to havoc for infrastructure. So how can we make our materials and infrastructure more resilient to ice? As well as how we can monitor how our power plants and our desal plants use water safely and returning it to the environment. All this week and more, we focus on new tech in water. If you're in part of the world that's currently in the grips of a polar vortex, you already understand that ice can be a big deal and a serious problem. But it also expands to anyone, even in very hot climates. For example, in the middle of a desert, ice can still form because sometimes temperatures can reach very cold levels overnight. Or if you're on an airplane, for example, as your plane ascends to high altitudes, ice conforms on wings. So most airports have de-icing equipment for exactly that reason, to prepare the airplane for its next flight by melting all the ice off the wings. And across each year, in say like the country like the United States, icy weather is blamed for multiple billions of dollars of losses, with everything from delays and damage to air travel, to the destruction of infrastructure, power lines, water pipes, or even in delaying power transmission, let alone the impact of people staying home from work or schools being closed. These all add up. But finding some way to cheaply and effectively counter ice is incredibly important for simply things like keeping the roads open and making sure people have water or electricity, which is essential in a very cold environment because you need to keep warm. So maintaining infrastructure is essentially one of the big challenges in a polar vortex or a cold snap. So how do you do it? Well, with roads, we often like to dump, say, salted materials onto the roads, with the idea here that it prevents the water from freezing and gives a bit of grit and traction. But as we've talked about several times on this podcast, that can have undesirable impacts to the environment, because all that salt on the roads can run off into the local water system after the snow melts, which can rapidly increase the salinity of the surrounding areas. And if you do that around a water catchment, well, that's even worse, because all that runoff heads straight into your dam and makes your drinking water potentially undrinkable in the summer. So that's one example that we talked about previously last year in this podcast, about how when designing an ice-phobic material, you have to take a lot of things into account. But researchers from the University of Houston have just published a paper in Materials Horizon, where they have described both a new material and an entirely new physical mechanism, and how you can use these two things together to make a cheap and efficient coating that is ice-phobic. Now, what they've done revolves around a concept in in physics called stress localization, and they use this new concept to specifically design a new material that's capable of taking advantage of this mechanism. This work was done by Hadid Kasami, who's the Bill Cook Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering at University of Houston. Together with a team, a very large team for the Mechanical Engineering Department, they were working on how you could try to find a way to develop a very cheap and effective way of breaking up ice. Now, the material that they've developed is a durable silicon polymer coating. And it's capable of repelling ice pretty much from any surface. And the reason why it does that is because it uses this stress 
localization technique. Now, the important part of Gassami's research was to develop a material that was ice phobic, but it also lasted for a long period of time and wasn't likely to leach out any chemicals and have any environmental degradation. Which, as we spoke about before, these kind of side effects are ones you really want to eliminate. So, when you put all those properties together and try to develop a new material from scratch, it works and narrows down the list of where you can look at. Now, for example, Gassami and his team have looked at previously new ice phobic materials but they weren't able to overcome the problem of ice basically adhering to the surface. Yes, you could repel ice to some degree, but you eventually hit a critical point where enough ice film builds up on the surface of the material that all its ice phobic properties just disappear. So to avoid the ice actually forming on the material, they had to find something that would crack the ice as it formed on the surface to prevent it from building like a large ice block or sheet. And to do that, you need to find a mechanism that basically makes it very, very likely for the material to crack as soon as it starts to adhere to the surface. And that's where stress localization comes in. Basically, there's a certain amount of buildup in the material, elastic energy localization, at the transition point between the ice and the material surface. And there's a, this buildup of energy can actually trigger cracks at that interface, that bonding point. And that just acts like shearing off the ice. Those cracks prevent the ice, whilst it's formed, from having a really strong bond with the actual surface beneath it. And what's amazing about that is you can actually design it with such a minimal force required to shear off that ice to break it away or chip it away that you know, simply the flow of the air over a surface could be enough to trigger the ice to fall away. Now, if you imagine an airplane wing, that's exactly what you need. You just need a material coating that as soon as you start to move and there's a little bit of airflow over the wing, the ice just falls off. That's pretty much ideal for a mobile structure like that. And this material itself can be applied as a spray, which means it can be used on any surface. It's unaffected by ultraviolet rays, which for a plane which gets constant sun exposure is incredibly important. The other incredibly important part for an airplane is to make sure that it doesn't have any negative impact on the aerodynamic performance, the lift it can generate and any drag induced by an additional coating. The good news about this material is it doesn't seem to have any negative impact there, and it will last for more than 10 years without any real need to reapply. So this is a great example of a new material being developed mechanical engineering department at the University of Houston that can help save time and increase reliability of critical infrastructure by using a whole new physical mechanism to help make sure ice doesn't even begin to form at the surface and can just be easily brushed away by a breeze. Now, while some parts of the United States are struggling with a dramatic polar vortex, on the other side of the planet, all the way over here in Australia, we are dealing with extreme levels of heat. We are in a massive drought at the moment in some states like New South Wales and Queensland, much in the same way that places like California are also in a major drought. Now, this drought is uh, important for agriculture and for farming, but also for just generally supplying people with water. A lot of places rely only on rainfall filling dams for their water source, and that's where something like a desalination plant makes a lot of sense. A desalination plant really helps build up a resiliency in your supply by using seawater and turning that into drinking water. So desalinization plants can really help 
a city survive even in a large drought. And that's exactly why in Southern California, they built the Carlsbad desalination plant, which began operation in 2015. But scientists from the University of California, Santa Cruz, have been studying the impacts of the desalinization plant. Because one of the downsides of a desal plant is they pump out water back into the very ocean where they draw their source. Except this water has now become intensely filled with salt. It becomes an incredibly high salinity brine. Basically, all the salt water they take out from the water to turn it into fresh drinking water gets dumped into some remaining water and discharged back into the ocean. The end effect of that is worthy of study. Basically like concentrating and drying off all that salt and then dumping it back into the ocean. But the ocean's already salty, you say. What does it matter if we just throw a little bit more salt into it? And that's exactly what UC Santa Cruz researchers were trying to study, which they just published in the journal Water this week. Since 2014, before the Carlsbad desal plant actually went into operation, they collected measurements of the water chemistry and biological indicators in the area around the desal plant. Now, the way the desal plant works is it sucks in water, does a combination of processes to it, and then discharges the remnants, including all this extra salt taken out. And basically, this intake and outlet dumping area uh, means there's an area of the coast which has a huge volume of water changing hands through it. And that's the particularly the area that the researchers were looking at. Now, the good news out of this study is that they found there were no real significant changes in the organisms that were living on the seafloor around this inlet and outlet from the desal plant. And that's pretty interesting. Basically, all of the organisms around there and looking at other biological indicators like health of the, the ecosystem, they found that, yeah, you know, they seem to be coping just fine. But hold your horses here. The researchers attributed this to the long history of industrial activities in the area, which includes, amongst other things, dumping cooling water from a nearby power plant straight into the same area, which means that this area isn't a pristine natural environment. It's an industrial ecosystem to begin with, which means the creatures living there are already particularly hardy and aren't that sensitive. Now, the bad news from this study is that the salinity level in the discharge from this desalinization plant exceeds the permitted level. And not only does the salinity level exceed any sort of the recommendations or guidelines imposed on this plant, the actual plume of salt extends much further out into the Californian Ocean plan as it was allowed to be. And the Pacific Ocean may be big, but the area around California is particularly monitored and managed by California government, which makes sense. Because there's a lot of sensitive ecosystems and environments out there. So that's what the California Ocean Plan does. It sort of manages and monitors the ocean around. And what they're finding is that the desal plant is dumping out saltier water than expected, and it's getting ejected further and further offshore, which is an important consideration. So whilst desal is pretty important, and it took 14 years of planning and site selection before they could pick and design a place to put this desal plant, it was placed in probably the best spot it could be. But if you want to lessen the environmental impact, senior authors like Adina Patton, a research professor at the Institute of Marine Sciences at UC Santa Cruz, point out that you need to really carefully select the location. Desalinization, Adina Patton states, is one solution for addressing our water needs in densely 
populated coastal areas. It can work if done right, and our study highlights some areas where planning and monitoring can be improved. So the important part here is that now we know more how desal plants can impact their environment, especially in the California setting. But it just goes to show that despite careful planning and research, there can still be unexpected impacts. Like before we spoke about, we need to be very careful in analyzing and selecting our locations for desal plants. They can save a city from drought, but they also might have negative impacts on the environment around it. And this is some great work done by Karen Likebro Peterson, Nadine Heck, Borja Ritiro, Donald Potts, Armin Hovagamian, and Adina Patayan from UC Santa Cruz. As mentioned before, the location of the Carlsbad desal plant is actually very close to an existing power plant's discharge point of its cooling water back into the ocean. And it's very common for a power plant to use water either from a lake, nearby reservoir or the ocean as its cooling mechanism. Because when you need to cool and boil water to generate steam and electricity, you end up with a lot of interesting leftovers. And that's something that can be quite damaging for the environment. In particular, you can end up with a lot of CO2 inside the discharge water, and that can change the quality of the water and lead to different behavior. It can kill the creatures living in the water because now there's just too much CO2 in it. So how you clean that discharge water is incredibly important. And that's what researchers at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory have been looking at and recently published in the journal Chem. They've developed a mechanism that draws a lot from what existing scuba rebreathers used in submarines and anaesthetic equipment used to try and prevent the accumulation of CO2 gas, and repurposed it to apply to energy generation, in particular for plants like a coal-burning power, to make it cleaner by improving the way it captures the carbon, prevents it from getting in the water, and can store it in a nice way. So there's a lot of different ways to try and develop what we call carbon capture. So from a particularly carbon intensive process like burning coal, we want some way to prevent all that CO2 getting released into the atmosphere for a number of reasons. Obviously the environmental one is a key, but it also can be used and repurposed for other purposes. So capturing that carbon can be quite beneficial. But the problem with many of the state-of-the-art carbon capture techniques is that they have drawbacks. Often they use liquid sorbents which evaporate or decompose over time which means you need to spend a lot of energy 60% of the regeneration energy spent on just heating up the sorbent in the first place which means that if you want to try and use a material a sorbent to capture some of that carbon you have to have spend a lot of time heating up or dealing with or turning over that sorbent in the first place which just is energy intensive time consuming and not particularly efficient and that's where this IRNL research team came in. They sort of stumbled into this research by accident, as senior author Radu Kustelesian says. They rediscovered a class of organic compound. They discovered effectively, again, a class of compounds called bisminoguanides, and that BIGs, BIGs, which were first reported by German scientists all the way back at the turn of the 20th century, mostly because they had a really good ability to bind anions, which are negatively charged ions. Now, the team members realized that if you use this property to bind and separate anions, you could apply it to bicarbonate anions. But hang on, 
in CO2. You have a whole bunch of them. And they developed a whole CO2 separation cycle, which used an aqueous BIG solution. Basically, in their method, you take the gas from the flue, the, the output from the, the boiling process, from the power plant, and you bubble it through a solution. What happens then is the CO2 passes by these bigs. Bigs sort of rip off, because they have these anion process, to be able to pull off all the little bits from it. They can absorb and crystallize out some of that CO2 molecule into a form of organic limestone, which is not only pretty cool, but a pretty fascinating chemical process. So this organic limestone basically precipitates out of the solution. This solid then can be filtered out because it's now a solid precipitate in an aqueous solution. You can just filter it out like a standard technique and heat it to 120 degrees and you can release the CO2 on its own. So Basically, the BIG captures the CO2 from the water that's passed through it, stores it temporarily as part of this organic limestone. You filter out that limestone, heat it up a little bit, and then you can release that CO2 as a gas and trap it on its own. You can then recycle and reuse that organic limestone, the liquid sorbent, the bigs, again. And it can be used pretty much indefinitely. That means you're saving a whole bunch of energy, and you can use about 24% less energy than any other of the sorbents out there. Plus, there's no sorbent loss, even after 10 consecutive cycles as they did at the original trial. So this organic soda lime is basically the same technique used on a smaller scale in other scrubbers of oxygen, for example, for scuba gear or for anesthetic equipment and so on. But it's applying it now to an industrial process of taking out carbon emissions from a power plant. And not only is it amazingly environmentally friendly now because we have a good carbon capture technique, it's also incredibly efficient and non-wasteful because you use less energy in the first place and you actually can reuse this process over and over and over again, which is a great idea if we want to make our carbon intensive power plants like a gas-fired power station, which we still have many of as they close slowly. This helps make them a lot more efficient and useful in the long run. So some great work published by the Oak Ridge National Laboratories in the journal Chem. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Desal plants helping us survive droughts to making materials so slick that ice just slips off and making sure our water from our power plants has less CO2 inside it all this week and more. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.